iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yo, technology, what is it all about? Silicon Valley is a place of legends and lore. The myth of the overnight success is what drives undernourished engineers to work endless all-nighters, hoping that someday they will become the next Steve Jobs. Yet in these fairy tales, there's always more than one hero. There is, of course, the protagonist, the brilliant visionary. But there's also the venture capitalist, the one far-sighted person who had the gumption to back our hero when no one else would, and in so doing, made a 1,000x return on their big bet. These days, you hear a lot of this around Uber. You can't swing a cat in San Francisco and not hit at least a couple people who claimed it was them who discovered the ride-hailing giant way back when. But today's guest on Danny in the Valley can legitimately lay claim to playing a part in the rise of the newest and perhaps most controversial kid on the tech block, Snapchat. You know, we look for things that create new habits. We look for things that we think could become part of popular culture, and we look for things that have a scalable, repeatable way of gaining new users. Jeremy Liu is a venture capitalist at Lightspeed Ventures. Five years ago, he gave $485,000 to a Stanford student named Evan Spiegel to help him grow his nascent messaging app. When Snap went public on the New York Stock Exchange this March, what began as a 485 grand bet had ballooned to nearly $2 billion worth of shares in what was the hottest tech IPO in years. Liu basically never has to work again but he still is. So I brought him on to talk about how he found Snapchat, how he got comfortable investing in an app that was back then known for more than anything else for sexting, and Snap's early struggles as a public company. We also talk about why young women are the best lead indicators for the next big thing, and of course, what is the next big thing. Anyhow, hope you enjoy it. Here's Jeremy. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Danny. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Lots to cover, but I figure perhaps it's best we're starting because you have a bit of an accent. You're not from these shores, are you? I grew up in Australia. I uh, didn't move to America until 96. I actually didn't become a citizen until last year. Last year? Wanted you... to vote in this election. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't had that motivation. It doesn't until... really matter in California, though. It, it, well, that's true. Since having kids here, I've realized how much the local politics does matter. Yes, and those true. are those are elections that are determined by hundreds or thousands, true. not tens of thousands yeah. of votes. So you're from Australia. Where in Australia? Yeah, I grew up in Australia in Perth, born in Singapore. From one uh, west coast to another. Yes, exactly. So I went to university in Canberra at ANU, and I lived in Sydney for a little bit, and then in Johannesburg for a little bit before moving to L.A. To um, L.A.? Was, there, was this for... City Search. What's City Search? Uh, city Search was a first-generation online city guide business 
It's part of IAC now. My boss at McKinsey started the company, and I didn't know anything about the internet, but I thought he was a really good boss, so I asked him if I could come, and he said I could. And so, so you were at McKinsey before? I was at McKinsey uh, in, in Sydney and then Johannesburg, then ended up going to business school here at Stanford. And then you decided venture capital was pretty cool? Took me a little while to figure that out, actually. So <laughs> while I was at business school, City Search went public and merged with Ticketmaster Online. So it became part of what's now IAC. It was called USA Networks at the time, but the company's run by Barry Diller. So I spent my summer at USA Networks, and then I joined after I graduated as VP of Strategic Planning. And I spent a couple of years in that role, worked on the acquisitions of Expedia and Hotels.com and Ticketmaster and Match.com. And so it was the transformation from a media company into an interactive company. I did that for a few years. All the companies that I was working on acquiring, actually my boss at the time was Dara Kozrashavi. I was just going to ask. Yeah. I was wondering if you guys crossed, crossed paths. Yeah, he, he was my boss when I was a summer intern there and then continued to be my boss when I joined. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's this weekend. I think he's flying to London to have a little meeting with the um, authorities. You know, if anyone can sort it out, he can. He seems universally just loved and respected. Uh, just because he's a good man. He's a terrific executive good man with a moral compass that knows when to do the right thing and will take a stand when necessary. Right. It's kind of what Uber needs. Uh, very much so. So you left there to, and then joined Lightspeed? Uh, n- not quite. I, it took me a while to figure out what I was going to do with my life. I worked at IC for a few years and everything that I was working on acquiring ended up reporting to John Miller, president of IAC at the time. And then he ended up leaving to go be CEO of AOL in 2002. And I went with him and was his chief of staff and SVP of corporate development. There does seem to be like an AOL diaspora. I talked to a lot of people who have who passed through there at one point or another. It's been around a long time. And so it's unsurprising that a lot of people have come through it. And if yeah. you were working at AOL in the 90s or the early 2000s, that means that by now you've been in the industry for 20 or 30 years. And so you're probably decently good at your job and... And so that's probably why you see a lot of AOL alumni scattered around the industry. Most of the, well, I don't know about most, many of the companies around then. Didn't make it. Yeah. Yeah, Exploded exactly. in spectacular fashion. Right. So the ones that are still here, you yeah. see a lot of alumni. Right. So I, I spent a couple of years doing corporate development and as the chief of staff, the CEO. Then I dropped into an operating job and I was the general manager of Netscape and I ran that business for a couple of years. And it wasn't until the end of 2005 that I got a call from a business school classmate. The internet had sort of fallen out of favor since the internet bubble burst in 2000. It was all over. It, yeah, you know, and, and I remember when advertising revenue uh, online was just falling and falling and falling every year. It was actually falling. Yeah. Because uh, right now it just seems, you know, it's just like this huge, if you look at the graph, it's like a mountain that just keeps getting higher. I mean, back in 2004, the big question for AOL was, um, could you build a business based on online advertising? Because their their business at the time was a bundle of access plus service plus content. And the big question was, couldn't we unbundle the access from the service and the content? And you know that was predicated on if you could build a media business. That's why I, I went to Netscape to try to figure out if with a brand that wasn't the name in the building, could we build a media business? And we resolved that we could, and, and subsequently, you know, AOL made the changes to separate the access from the service and the content. 
but that was too big a, a bet to have made without having at least tried it with something else. Right. By 2005, there were new shoots of entrepreneurial activity on the internet space. So there were a number of different firms that were looking to add someone with domain expertise to their investing teams. And I had a few conversations and one thing led to another and I ended up at Lightspeed. Was that always what you were going to do was kind of consumer facing startups? Yeah. So Lightspeed has a long history of being an excellent investor in infrastructure and enterprise. A few of the partners had also made some investments in some consumer companies with some success in the late 90s. Uh, but I was the first person to be solely focused on internet and consumer investing. Just take me through the story. It's because you invested in March 2012. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, you know, there's always got to be a little bit of luck involved. For us, the luck was that my partner, Barry Eggers, had kids that went to a school where SNAP was being used relatively early on. St. Francis. St. Francis. Which was my rival high school back in the day. Is that right? Yes, it is. Well, they're going to have a much nicer gym than your high school <laughs> <I know>. now. <laughs> the school ended up investing, right? And that turned... Thing. They put $15,000 into the very first round of SNAP. So the first round of SNAP we led with... $485,000 and $15,000 came from St. Francis. Barry's an engaged dad, and he noticed that his daughter was taking a lot more selfies. And she said, oh, dad, there are three apps that everybody has at school, Instagram, Angry Birds, and Snapchat. We were familiar with Angry Birds. We were familiar with Instagram. We hadn't heard of Snapchat. And so I, I went to the website, and I downloaded the app. But as you know, Snapchat is a social app. It's really hard to understand the point if you don't have... Yeah, I presume people. you didn't have any many friends on it. <laughs> I, I did not know a lot of teenage girls at that time. Uh, and so I was like, okay. I went to the website and uh, there wasn't very much information there, but there was a info at Snapchat email address. So I emailed it and I never heard anything back. I looked up Snapchat on LinkedIn and there were no employees listed on LinkedIn. So I did a who is lookup to see who had registered the Snapchat URL. And I found a new email address, info at toyopagroup.com. So I emailed that. Again, I didn't hear anything back. So then this just became a challenge. I'm like, okay. I, I looked up in the Toyopa Group on LinkedIn, and there was one employee, Evan Spiegel, student at Stanford and the CEO of Toyopa Group. So I thought, great. And I messaged him through LinkedIn, and I never heard anything back. So... I started just making up email addresses. Evan oh, the guessing. at toyopagroup.com, E underscore Spiegel at Snapchat. I just made up all these possible emails and I tried and never heard anything back from any of them. Finally, I tried messaging him on Facebook and I got a response back in like 20 minutes. Millennials. <laughs> I wasn't sure if it's because, you know, millennials didn't use email or whatever, but later on I asked him, like, why did you respond to me on Facebook when you had all these other messages. And he said, well, um, I looked at your profile picture and I saw that it was a picture of you with Obama. I'd been to a, a fundraiser and, I, and he said, and I figured you must be a decent guy. So I got back to you. But I, I'd reached him at, a, at an opportune time because Snapchat was growing and he said that he wasn't able to afford to pay his server bills. And what was Snapchat at that point in terms of like a business or how many users it had? Or At the time, it had some tens of thousands of daily users. It was being run part-time by Evan and Bobby Murphy, who were the two founders. Bobby 
had graduated and was working for another startup. Evan came over because our offices are only about a mile away. We cracked open his analytics dashboard and I saw tremendous growth, incredible engagement, amazing retention. And I suggested we might be able to help him with this server cost problem. Right. And within a couple of weeks, we had invested in the company and led their seed round and um, introduced them to their lawyers and given them office space and helped them with their business planning and just helped them kind of get off the ground. And what would a server cost for tens of thousands be? I would have to go back and check, but it was in the thousands or tens of thousands a month. So you need some kind of help, I mean, as a student. Yeah, definitely, you know, your credit card only gets you so far. Yeah, right, because I think his dad was helping out. That's right. Is that dynamic normal? You're the one with the money, and companies need money, so I imagine you're being chased all the time. I mean, how often do you have to chase companies to find, to kind of meet them? Oftentimes, a lot of the hardest companies don't have to go hat in hand, walking up and down Sand Hill Road looking to raise money. They've got a lot of people reaching out to them. In the case of Snapchat, we were lucky in that we got an early warning signal from Barry's daughter, so we uh, caught them a little bit earlier. We believe that consumer technology is popular culture, and we believe that popular culture, the early adopters of popular culture are young women. These things kind of explode very quickly, and everybody's using them, and then sometimes they continue to grow, like Facebook, which is now an empire, or they just wither and die just as quickly as they appear. And your job seems particularly hard because it's a kind of a fad business, isn't it? It's absolutely true that, you know, we make, we're early stage investors. And so a, a decent amount of the time, the investments that we make go to zero. But Is that you, most of the time? Um, I would say that maybe a third to a half of the time yeah. they would go to zero. What that means is that when the companies work, they have to really work because they're going to make up for all the losses. With consumer technology, you really want to see the Snapchat-sized outcomes, you know, the Instagrams, the Facebooks, these things that really become part of popular culture, things that initially get popular with young women because we think they are the early adopters of popular culture. They're kind of a good leading indicator. They're a good leading indicator that it could become widespread one day. I would draw that in contrast. So if you think about Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, Vine, TBH, they all got big initially with young women. Now, they all became really? part of popular culture. Yeah. They didn't all last as part of popular culture. Now, it's not always true. Twitter, for instance, did not start with young women. Reddit would be another good example, yeah. where it started primarily with young men. Um, huge community. A lot of things that come out of Reddit become part of popular culture, but Reddit itself has not become part of popular yeah. culture. So you invest 485 grand. Now, I've, I mean, this has become a kind of one of those stories because of what Snapchat went on to do and what it has become so far. And I've heard a lot of people say, oh, this was like such a big call, it was a big risk. But in the grand scheme of things, 485 grand doesn't sound like that big a risk. I think it's safe to say that we did not realize how pervasive it would be. It's certainly surprises on the upside in the way that it has become fully part of popular culture. I mean, it's become a daily habit for hundreds of millions of people. I don't think it's reasonable to expect that in every investment when historically you know that a third to half the time you're going to lose all your money. Back in the day when it started, like every 
great Silicon Valley founding story. There's a lawsuit that went along with about who started it and when and who got credit and who got cut out, et cetera. But in those, it talks about, you know, it's early days as what appeared to be a sexting app. How did you get comfortable with the idea that, okay, this isn't what this is going to be used for? Or, you know, how'd you get to a place where like we can invest in this as a company? You can always look to the data in questions like this. So Snapchat encrypted its photos. So you couldn't actually see what people were sending. But what you could do is you could see what people were posting to Instagram with a hashtag Snapchat. And we looked at those and they mostly looked like selfies of people making weird faces. You know, that was a common use case and then right. like this was just a way of like just how many, sharing like, you, you actually spoke as part of your due diligence, you actually spoke to users? Yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. what's a lot? Tens. Right. Yeah. I'm not sure they would have told me they would use it for sexting, but, like, <laughs> yeah. but they did tell me what they were using it for, and it, yeah. and it seemed consistent with what we were seeing. But then we did a bit of analysis, and at the time, you know, because there were not that many users, they were mostly concentrated in the U.S. Uh, and actually mostly concentrated on the West Coast. So we we looked at the time of day that snaps were being sent. We could see that there was a very strong clustering between about 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. That's when the vast majority, call it 90, 95% of snaps were being sent. That gave us a lot of confidence that the primary use case for Snapchat was not sexting because people aren't sneaking out of class to sext. And so we, we felt very comfortable that uh, this was in fact as represented a way for people to share little moments of their lives, not just when they're excited and proud, which is when they would be posting to Instagram or Facebook, but the full 360 degrees of their lives. And does it immediately take off? Is it a rocket ship or would you ever was there a moment where you're like, mm, maybe this isn't going to work? It has been a story that's largely gone up and to the right. It was certainly the case when we invested. Historically, there's a little bit of a summer slowdown, and you can imagine that that correlates with school, you know, who people are seeing and how often they're seeing each other, uh, because this has always been a product that has primarily been driven by word of mouth. You really sort of saw that when you would see someone like show somebody Snapchat for the very first time, you needed to tell them your username. So it was literally happening from word of mouth, meaning like from my mouth right. to your ears. Like analog. Analog, old school <laughs> word of mouth. So there were times when it, it, the growth slowed a little bit, but it, yeah. it has largely been up to the right story. And so you invest in March 2012. It goes public in March 2017. Your 485 grand turns into 86 million shares at the time of the IPO, more or less. We invested more money over time. How much uh, did you invest total? I think it's probably around eight or nine million dollars altogether. The IPO is worth somewhere between one and a half and two billion dollars. That's a big range. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Say two billion ish. Ish. That's yeah. That's quite an amazing return. I was very pleased. <laughs> Voiceover describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. Voiceover on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Venture capital is a hits business. Before Snapchat, were you ever thinking like, hmm, how's this all going to work out? You know, as a career, because it's, I mean, obviously a snap investment is kind of a once in a lifetime thing i would guess hopefully i'll have another one yeah, i'm yeah. not planning on quitting anytime soon <laughs> was that like your first kind of big like home run grand slam i've had outcomes before certainly snapchat was the biggest exit that i have right. invested in so snapchat now it's a public company evan spiegel and bobby murphy the founders they have this quite extraordinary setup and that what the shares they were selling were kind of non-voting shares, which is pretty unusual. At the IPO. At the IPO, yeah. yeah. It, which basically means that the way the, that it's structured, almost no matter what happens, they will never lose control of this company, including, I think, if one of them dies. I have a proxy over them, yeah. They don't get their shares, but they get the right. voting rights of the shares. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Is that dangerous? If you look at the history of a lot of media and technology companies, you see a very kind of similar concept, which is that the founders maintain control, whether it be Viacom or News Corp or Fox. News Corp, um, our parent corporation. um, Or Google or Facebook. The founders maintain control until they sell their shares or give their shares away or, or whatever it is. This is not an unprecedented move. And I think in these instances where so much of the success of the company depends on the vision of the founders, their ability to make decisions in what they believe to be the long-term interests of the company can be very beneficial. Is this not an extreme case in terms of just the, the protections I think it's a, I think it's a matter of degree. When you control the company, it doesn't matter by how much you control it. Yeah. You control it. And there's been a lot written about when you first invested, the terms of the investment basically gave you first right of refusal for future rounds. And apparently this Evan Spiegel didn't know what he was signing or he was upset by this because it gave you kind of more control than he liked. Was the structuring of that part of this as a public company and that kind of iron grip on control, do you think that was a reaction to that? First of all, I I don't think it's correct to say that Evan didn't understand what he was signing. His father is a He's a corporate lawyer, right? Corporate lawyer. He had Cooley as company counsel, which is... Uh, Cooley Godward. Which is one of the law firms that focuses and specializes on startup law. I would not characterize him as naive or, or not understanding what was going on. He's a very sophisticated person, and, and you can see that from the way that he has run the company. Historically, as I said, there is a lot of precedent for technology and media companies to have the founders maintain control, and I think that that's probably the precedent that the founders looked towards as they thought about how they wanted to build the corporate governance for Snapchat. So how are relations now between you and Evan? Are you guys on speaking terms or is it kind of cordial or what's the situation? Yeah, my relationship is fine. You know, I, got, I get holiday presents from him. I saw him around the IPO. 
now that the company's public, I'm not on the board, and so right. uh, I, I don't have the same level of communication with him as I did previously. But I think, yeah, things are great. Right. Snap as a company, speaking again about these companies that rise and rise or rise and fall, as a public company, it's been a rough ride because it went public, I think, at 17 bucks a share, then it went up, and now it's at like 14 and it appears that Mark Zuckerberg's aggressive copycatting campaign is working with Instagram basically just copying everything that Snapchat does, and they have a much bigger base of customers at which to kind of throw these new products. Are you worried? Facebook itself had a very similar ride after it went public. You know, yeah, it was a bit of a disaster. It was a bit of a stock surge. Yeah. Then it fell, and you know, since then it's it's grown by many multiples. Yeah. At the end of the day, I take the perspective that five years ago, a company was founded, and today that company employs tens of thousands of people, is worth, I think it's around $15 billion. And I would regard that as a resounding success for entrepreneurship. In terms of some of the feature copying you know, that Instagram in particular has been doing, I think that one of the most important things to realize is that user behavior is a function of, within an app, is a function of two things. One is the features and functionality, and the second is user culture. And so people behave the way they see others behave and the way that they're used to behaving. If you and I go to a wine bar and we look around and everybody is ordering wine and sort of talking in hushed tones, then we will order wine and talk in hushed tones. You're not going to go in and yell, you know, bring me a pitcher of beer. That's right. But if we go to a dive bar then we're going to get a pitcher of beer and we're going to drink beer and we're going to talk loudly because that's the only way you could you can communicate because yeah. of the sports game on and, and the way that everyone else is talking. Yet we're the same people and the features and functionality of those two places are the same. And yet you behave differently. So is um, Facebook the wine bar? <laughs> well, um, so I'm, I'm not sure that that analogy yeah. strictly holds, yeah, but, yeah, you know, yeah. but Facebook and Instagram, they have both created cultures where you post the highlight reels of your life. My Instagram life has, bears no resemblance to my actual life. You, you don't post on Instagram when you're changing a diaper at, you know, I 2 do in not. the morning. I do not. Right? But when your kid takes his first steps, that's going on Instagram. And so that is the user culture of both Facebook and Instagram. Snapchat has built a very different user culture where rather than just projecting the highlight reel of your life, you're actually showing the full 360 of your life, but only to your closest friends. And that has been developed very deliberately. So for instance, Snapchat doesn't show you how many followers you have. There's no like button. And so you get a very different set of dynamics. And so even... Yeah, because there's a great great obsession with, I post this on Instagram, how many likes does it get? Snapchat has built a very different user culture, one where uh, people share a lot more of their lives, not just when they're happy and excited and proud, but when they're goofy or silly or sad or anything. Even as Instagram stories has grown, you've seen Snapchat continue to grow. Time used has gone up 30 minutes per user per day. Um, Growth in the core markets has continued to go up. Notwithstanding the fantastic growth of Instagram stories, it doesn't seem to have impacted the way that Snapchat continues to grow. And then when you look at Facebook stories, I mean, we can open up your Facebook app now and look at how many stories you have. Let's do it. Okay. I'll, I'll open up my... Facebook account right now, and you should do the same. Let's see, Facebook. 
Something about Donald Trump, something about Donald Trump. <laughs> so I literally have no stories. And with an invitation for me to post my own. Yeah. How many do you have? I have none. Features and functionality is exactly the same, but the use cases are totally different. It's about that, how that interacts with user culture. Well, there's this idea that, so Instagram copies everything, and they feed it into this massive beast that is the Facebook kind of ecosystem. And it, all of a sudden you have these huge numbers, and it feels like it's a zero-sum game. Well, the evidence would suggest that it's not, right? Because if it was a zero-sum game, what you would see is you would see the time being spent on Snapchat going down. In fact, it's going up. You would see the growth in its core markets going down. In fact, it's right. you, would, you, would, I guess you would growth see it not is slowing, though, I guess is what Wall Street's worried yeah, about. Yeah, but that's, the, that's just the law of large numbers. But are you worried that that is going to become... Twitter, which is 11 years old and is still searching for a business model and just, you know, racking up losses. That's the thing, right, is monetizing all these hundreds of millions of people that are spending tons of time on this app. But how do you do it in a way that doesn't turn people off? Snapchat today already has more daily active users than Twitter. If it can monetize even to the level that Twitter does, it's going to be generating, you know, many billions of dollars in revenue, and uh, I think that's a pretty great outcome. And as you say, it's only, it's, it's five years old. So far, so good. <laughs> and just, again, going back to this idea of kind of separating, because venture capital obviously is a hard business, but I feel like your kind of chosen niches is particularly hard. So choosing or finding things that young women are latching onto is one way to kind of separate the fad from actual businesses are there any other ways that you're looking at like okay this is these are the things that we look for that actually show that this actually might have some staying power you know we look for things that create new habits we look for things that we think could become part of popular culture and we look for things that have a scalable repeatable way of gaining new users the exact mechanics of what that means can vary depending on if it's an e-commerce site or if it's a social network or a gaming site or whatever. But those are the three lenses that we typically look for. Can you give an example aside from Snapchat? Giphy. The oh, this is the app where it's full of all these GIFs that you can send around to your friends, which is quite fun. Yeah, it's an app. It's a website. But most importantly, it's an API that's been integrated into, for instance, Facebook and Twitter and Tinder and Slack and a whole host. It's on of Tinder things. as well. It is, absolutely. <laughs> I did not know that. I'm glad that you did not know that, given that you're married and have <laughs> yeah, kids. Yeah, exactly. I'm not, I'm, gl- I'm not as glad as your wife is. <laughs> um, and that's another great example where, you know, that's a product that has a couple of hundred users every day, a couple hundred million daily active users. That many? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Through the integrations, through all of these right, of services, course. right? As the leader in the space and you're seeing people using GIFs more and more, text is not a great way to communicate everything. Hence, um, hence emojis, which are kind of a, obviously another Im- imperfect way, but a different way to express yourself. I think you actually can see this sort of progression as people have tried to add more emotion and context beyond text. My wife is a lawyer mm-hmm. and she has a very particular way about writing messages, emails, texts. And so it can come off, I mean, this happens to everybody, it can come off as very kind of like dry or hard. Or you, it can be easily misinterpreted. You have to kind of think really hard about just sending a simple message because there's no way to express emotion. 
I think people have been trying to hack that for, for you know, since digital communication began. I mean, if there's uncertainty about how a text message could be interpreted, people will add an emoji to show that they are joking or not joking, that they're serious or angry or teasing you or whatever it is. Yeah. And that's fantastic. The challenge with emojis is that although there's a lot of them, there's a fixed number of them. It's a fixed alphabet. So if you want to say, I love you to your wife, or to your daughter, or to your best friend, or to your mother, like you only really have the one choice of the heart eyes emojis or a heart. And that's not actually enough range of expression to really communicate the differences that I love you means in each of those contexts. Yeah. And that's where gifts can really help. Gifts allow you to access every television show or movie or celebrity that has been out there so you get a much a much broader range of expression and therefore more subtlety in the communications so that you don't get a weird look from your friend the next time you say, I love right, you well, to you him. Love me. You are, we, do we need to have a conversation? Exactly. We're seeing this wholesale adoption of gifts. As I said before, anytime you become part of popular culture, you figure out a way to make money. Listening to all this gifts and Snapchat, so do, do you ever think to yourself, this job is ridiculous? And I don't mean that in an insulting way at all, but it's just... You're investing large amounts of money in funny little gifts or somebody sending a selfie to their friend talking about what they're doing. And it just, it all seems so kind of frivolous, but you know, every once in a while the, an empire is created. Entertainment has always been something that's been core for human beings. People don't work as much as they can. They work until they have enough resources to enjoy themselves the rest of the time. And so I would regard all this stuff as an extension of that. People don't live to work, they work to live. And the live part, you know, I think broadly defined, is mostly about finding ways for happiness and entertainment. And so that's how I would view a lot of this stuff. So there's increasing worries. I don't know if you saw this piece in The Atlantic recently about kind of millennials and Gen Z and how they're being quote-unquote ruined by the... They're the first generation that grew up with the iPhone or grew up with smartphones, and it has become the kind of center of their universe. They go out less, they get their driver's license later, they're less kind of social in the way that previous generations saw it. I mean, you have kids, do you worry about that this is changing culture in an unhealthy way? I think every generation looks at the generation behind it and says, oh my goodness, those guys are, <laughs> those guys are ruined. All these people reading books, that can't be good for you. Like what happened to the, the lost art of conversation? All these people listening to music with headphones on, like these Walkmans must be destroying people's ears. They see change and they regard change as potentially negative because it's different from the thing that produced the wonderful human being that they are. So I'm not too worried about it. I think the change is inevitable. We see these certain instincts and they get instantiated through different mediums, but you know, they're still fundamentally addressing the same human issues. Future gazing, is there anything else in this kind of consumer world that you're excited about or that you think is kind of the next thing? Well, we were all super excited about VR and you know, it turns out that VR rigs are too expensive and, and therefore there's not enough of them. And, and so they might make you barf which is also yeah that the, the technology will get better you know that's something that i you know i don't worry about but like the key issue is that they're too expensive until the price comes down dramatically there's just not a big enough installed base for developers to be able to make money 
And if developers can't make money, then you're not going to get the innovation. So, the, so it's augmented reality. So that's interesting, right? You know, um, Snapchat was one of the early leaders in augmented reality with lenses and now world lenses. With Apple rolling out an AR kit and Google rolling out its own. Um, yeah, is that good or bad for Snapchat? I, again, like it's features and functionality plus the user culture, the combination of those two things. I think that it's absolutely good that AR will become more widespread. Um, I think the set of use cases that Snapchat has will continue to be used within Snapchat and will continue to be dominated by Snapchat because that's where the user behavior is. But AR is something that is going to be made widely available. It's going to be a platform that's going to have hundreds of millions and soon billions of people who can take advantage of it. And then, you know, audio-first interfaces, I think, is really interesting as well. What does that mean? Alexa and mm, um, voice. voice voice-driven interfaces. Most people are spending their time thinking about what does that mean for an Western in-the-home experience because that's where most Alexa devices are. Yeah, there's this great battle the for the home, so the home assistant that's exactly. broken out. Up until this point, while Amazon has rolled out a ton of fantastic devices, it's actually relatively hard as a developer to make money on that platform. There's no real hooks into monetization. There's no real hooks into advertising. The advertising network that was set up was shut down by, by Amazon. And so you have a problem with discovery yeah. of new skills or new apps. You also have a problem of re-engagement and retention. There's no equivalent of notifications for the app to talk to you or the skill to talk to you. You have to initiate it each time. Until those things get resolved, it's going to be hard for developers to make money. And again, if developers can't make money, they won't be spending yeah. as much of their time against it. But we're going to see the HomePod coming out from Apple, and they understand how to build developer ecosystems. Google Home, I think as those devices gain share and new developers eventually find ways to make money there. So that, I think, is really compelling. But I think there's another really interesting opportunity that hasn't been focused on as much because this has all been about owning the home in the West. And we have a few billion smartphones out there right now. I think it's order of magnitude, two or three billion smartphones. Yeah, it's, out there. it's three billion plus, I believe. Yeah. So three billion um, smartphones. There are, I think, seven billion humans. Mm-hmm. There's a good chunk of smartphone users who will come onto those platforms in the future who don't read and write, certainly literate in English. What does the web look like if you can't read and write? It's probably got to have an audio interface. You know, I think we're going to see all this technology that's being applied for voice recognition, for passing, and so forth that's been primarily focused on the West and primarily focused on in the home also find applications in the developing world as the next couple of billion of people who don't read and write right. start to access the web through smartphones. So figure out voice and then basically Google translate it. I don't think that the innovation is going to come from here. The people who really understand the problem best are the people who are experiencing it. And so I think there's going to be entrepreneurs, whether it be in India or in Africa or right. um, you know wherever it is where there are these large populations coming online that don't have literacy, and they're going to understand that the use cases may not be the same as what they are here, where it's not about like playing music or telling someone a joke or setting a timer. Or ordering it, a pizza. It might be about finding out what the price of maize is in the next village right. or um, you know, what time the bus is going to get here. Those are different interactions. It's hard sitting here in Silicon Valley to know exactly what they are. Right. But I'm pretty confident that a voice-first interface for illiterate users of smartphones is going to be transformational. 
a couple months ago, I was speaking with Adam Shire, who's one of the creators of Siri. And then he created um, Viv, which was bought by Samsung. Now he's at Samsung, and he's working on been working on this problem for 20-plus years. And his thesis is that whichever company kind of, quote-unquote, figures out voice, so, you know, the one voice assistant that can be used across all your devices, that will be the next generational company, the next kind of Google or Facebook. And it might be Google or Facebook, et cetera. Whoever wins that or figures that out is the next big tech company. That certainly sounds plausible. I, I think that it's it's going to be a massive unlock. Human voice recognition and translation is a difficult problem. It needs AI to solve. AI-related problems typically yield to the people who have the most data. The people who have the most data are typically, right now, they would be the, the bigger companies. But whatever those platform companies are, they will enable opportunities for developers, and those developers can also build generational companies. And that is all the time we have for another episode of Danny in the Valley. I want to thank Jeremy for taking the time to sit down and chat. I really do appreciate it, and I appreciate you for listening. So thank you. And what I appreciate even more is when you take the time to stop and do Apple Podcasts and give a rating and review. It really does help. Um, So please do keep them coming. Um, And of course, you can find uh, other episodes of Danny in the Valley uh, wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, uh, we're all over the place. I'm also in the newspaper every weekend in the Sunday Times online at thetimes.co.uk and on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Until next week, thanks very much. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.